and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. With me today is Mitch from Planet 5D. Tell me a little bit about yourself, Mitch. Planet 5D rocks. Let me just say that right off the bat, because I'm modest, and everybody who knows me knows that. <laughs> I I even have some sound effects. See? Oh, I'm nice. All set for you, boy. Getting fancy. This is Planet 5D. <laughs> So for those of you who may not know Planet 5D, uh, I started a couple of months after the big DSLR revolution took off when Vincent LaFerre did Reverie. Uh, I formed Planet 5D on November 15th of 2008. So we've been running for over six years now. Wow. It's been an awesome ride. That's a pretty good run. What's in your bag right now then? Are you still a cannon shooter? I am still a cannon shooter. Um, I don't know. You know, I've tried the Nikons and I've tried the Sony A7S and maybe it's just a matter of getting accustomed to them, but I've got cannons. I've got cannon glass. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of rare maybe, I think, these days, or maybe not so rare, but I shoot both photos and video. And... In keeping my Canon glass, for example, like the Sony A7S, I had the Metabones adapter when I was testing that from B&H Photo. And um, I just didn't like taking stills because there's that nagging delay when the adapter is trying to do the autofocus. And so I, I just loved my 5D Mark III, and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, I've been pretty disappointed with the uh, adapter setup for Canon Glass to the A7S. Oh, I'm actually yeah. looking at some native lenses because of that, even looking at some old Minolta lenses for that reason. It's really disappointing that there isn't a faster method of focus, and I'm the same way. I take stills as well, and the whole format for taking stills on the A7S isn't nearly as convenient as it is on the 5D Mark III. So right. when you're like snapping off a picture... You get too close to the viewfinder and it shuts off the screen or, you know, it doesn't it doesn't register the same way that you're used to with a regular reflex uh, system like you are, have on the 5D Mark III. So photos in general almost feel a little bit painful on the A7S with non-native glass. I, I flatly refuse to use it. You said it's kind of okay. I think it really sucks. Um, so I'm just I'm just not going there unless they can come up with a better adapter. Now, have you looked at possibly buying some uh, native glass for the A7S, or have you just given up on it completely? Buying native glass for a variety of different cameras is not in my pocketbook, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, I like Canon glass, I'm, and I, I've got four Canon bodies, so why should I switch? Yeah, I'm kind of, I haven't completely abandoned Canon. I still kept a 6D as well as my 5D Mark III. And I have so much glass that I'm in the same boat. I'm probably never going to get rid of my Canon gear uh, just because of the investment I have in lenses. But I did end up selling off two of my 5D Mark III's and picking up a whole suite of lenses for the GH4. And I am looking at buying a few native lenses for the A7S just because the autofocus uh, Metabones adapter system for Canon glass just isn't really there. Well, the A7S definitely rocks. I mean, the, the low-light video capabilities are just amazing. And and with the frustration that I had with taking stills, uh, I didn't take that many stills when I had the A7S. And so I, I don't really know how to compare that. 
it's it's awesome because it's it's a full frame sensor like the 5D Mark III, uh, and I I really love full frame sensors for stills. So, you know, you don't necessarily need a full frame sensor for video. Obviously, many video cameras around the planet uh, don't do that. Uh, that's that's pretty much true. There's a lot of super 35 millimeter and smaller that are out there, along with uh, one inch and half inch sensors on some of the prosumer cameras. It's really nice to shoot video with the A7S, and I've enjoyed it, but it has a really specific purpose in my kit. I don't use it for everything. I just use it for a few things uh, when it comes up. It's kind of taken the place of the Canon C100 for me personally. I had the C100 for a while, did not like it, but I wanted that kind of low-light <laughs> performance. So, yeah. and I, while I we're... heard that in one of your earlier podcasts. You really ripped on the C100. Yeah, you know, people... Uh, people get really mad at me because I know there are a lot of professionals out there that really love the C100 and say it's a great camera, and there's a lot of praise for the C300 as well. I did not have that experience, and I tried hard because I thought maybe, you know, I'm just doing it wrong because everybody else tells me how amazing this is. But when I got to it, not very happy with it. And I'm going to use that as a segue here. Um, in our news articles today, we've got uh, the release of the Canon C100 Mark II, uh, that's the replacement to the original C100. The original C100 is dropped down in price to a new price tag of $4,000 and a used range of around $3,000, while the C100, uh, C100 Mark II is taking over the $5,500 price tag spot. Uh, the upgrades include 60 frames per second for 1080p. The original upgrade, which was the dual pixel AF CMOS system on the sensor, a few LUT supports, uh, Wi-Fi, as well as a slightly upgraded OLED screen with a 1.23 megapixel as opposed to the 1 megapixel on the original Canon C100. Now, Mitch, are these enough things to really make you spend five grand or more on the C100 Mark II? It, me personally, no. But um, I know it's it's interesting that you asked that question because I just I've started doing a simple Sunday survey that I call it on Planet 5D. Uh, weekly and guess what that's on sunday <laughs> and uh this past week i actually did one on the canon c100 price drop and i asked people what they thought uh whether they would be buying the c100 old or new or sticking with their dslrs and of course the vast majority of the people are sticking with what they know uh the price drop was only enticing people for about five to seven percent uh, there are about seven percent who said they were going to buy the c100 mark ii uh, so it didn't seem to be that exciting to most people to have that price come down yeah however i don't know if you've seen it uh adorama sent me an email yesterday or the day before where they've also lowered the price on the c300 and the c500 oh wow what's uh, is, what's the c300 down to C three hundred's down to eleven nine ninety nine oh. from thirteen nine ninety nine, so it's down two thousand bucks. Yeah, and the C five hundred, which was twenty grand, is now sixteen grand. I'm going to throw out all the nine nine nines because they're too difficult to say. <laughs> um, but so so that's awesome because all the pricing's coming down now. NAB is coming up. Does that mean new cameras are coming out? Well, let's just see. Now with the C300 and the C500 respectively, Sony has some really compelling uh, cameras like the Sony FS7, which is, I think, about 8,000, 
and right. the FS700, which is 6000 And those are both under the price of the C300. It seems to me, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like the C300 is a lot less compelling now that Sony has started to really hit the ground <laughs> running. And yeah. I see a lot of people shooting on the FS7 and the FS700. Those seem to be very popular cameras now. Are people really rushing out to buy the C300 anymore? You've got to remember that there are a lot of people that are Canon fanatics. Um, it's it's hard to break that brand alliance, which also, by the way, was my previous sim- Simple Sunday survey was brand preference. And, and in that survey, 81%. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, 81% of our readers said they were Canon owners and even things like Blackmagic were down in the 12% range. And uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of excitement on the websites like yours and mine over these other camera brands. But I don't, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to judge unless you're actually counting bodies sold to know whether people are really switching or whether they're really just flapping their lips out on the webs. Well, you know, you read on the forums and stuff that a lot of these people are complaining about the resolution of video on Canon DSLRs. Well, I'm not excited about what Canon's (laughs) been doing with their upgrades for DSLRs. I haven't really had much to complain about in way of resolution. I'm not blowing my 1080p images up so large that you can actually see the, uh, the smudges and the lack of resolution in the 1080p image. So it hasn't been a huge issue for me. And even people I talk to who complain about it, I ask them how many times in, in real life it actually becomes a problem. And they usually can't point to very many times where they're really upset about yeah. the quality of video that they're getting out of their DSLRs. And you, you watch it on a TV or a big screen and it still looks really, really decent. You know, no one can really tell the difference. I go to clients and show them footage and they're happy. No one complains and says, oh, this doesn't have enough resolution in it. So is there really that much of a cry or is this just a forum uh, fire, you know, going out on the Internet? I, I think you've got the nail hit right on the head. Uh, honestly, well, you know, filmmakers are pixel peepers. Yes. We, all, we all tend to want the newest gear. We want to make sure that every nuance is perfect and the color grading is perfect. And, you know, that's it's the sharpness that we want or the dullness that we want on the actress's face because they don't want their wrinkles showing. You know, <laughs> there are so many things that go on behind the scenes in shooting the film. But in reality, just like you just said, the consumers don't care. I mean, I, I'd say this all the time because... I have a nice 55-inch Sony XBR or something or other TV that I bought two years ago. Gorgeous 1080 screen. My kids, when they turn on the TV, they watch the SD channels. They don't even turn to the HD channels. Yeah, because they don't care. They don't give a rat's botootie about whether or not they're, they're looking for the content. And this is true for the vast majority of the people out there on the planet. They don't care. They just want to know a good story. And you even mentioned this in one of the previous podcasts I was listening to. It's all about the story. I mean, if, if, you, if you do good lighting, you do good focus, most people are going to get past, and sound, let's not forget sound, yeah. they're going to get past those nuances that you and I notice, and they're just going to watch the story. 
I think we're raising an entire generation here of people that are ingesting their media via the internet. And the quality on the internet is inherently low. And people are still okay with that. You know, look at stuff, and this is kind of low end, but you have Keyboard Cat and you have some Uh of these other trends that are running around on on YouTube. And there are people filming stuff with their phones and the lowest end cameras. Sure, there are a few shining stars that are really doing good production work, but there's just as much or more that's very low quality content as far as the production value goes. But it does really well, and people are really excited about it. I even talked to some bloggers that that do that for a living that just shoot on their phone. They set their phone on a little stand in front of them, run a mic out of the input jack, and that's it. That's how they do their show every day. And I cringe when they tell me that, but it works, and people watch it, so then it's back to content is king. It it really is. Um, It's so cool. There are so many people doing so many things. It's it's hard to talk about them all at one time. But Devin Graham is a guy that's over on YouTube. I don't know if you know he's Devin Supertramp. I may have seen his stuff. So much goes by me that uh, I, I forget know. names. Well, it, it, but he's he's made himself popular by doing these jumping off of cliffs and you know kind of stuff like that. And and he makes it a big deal now in his videos if he shot it in 4k that he puts that in the title now how many people actually watch it in 4k i don't know but apparently that's significant to some people but like you say my kids watch a whole bunch of other youtubers and they're shooting their stuff on iphones and android phones and again it goes back to what the content is was is very few people are focusing really on the quality except for the pixel peepers like you and me now, one of the things you mentioned, phones, uh, Arm has basically been really pushing the envelope on cell phone production. And this is kind of off of the notes a little bit, I'm drifting <gasps> into the corner. Going off notes? Yes. You do that? Uh, occasionally, oh. I manage to go off trail here. But Shocking. the Arm, the new latest generation of Arm processors has a coprocessor that's capable of handling H.265 and H.264 internally. And we're starting to see those in cameras on phones like the uh, new Samsung Galaxy uh, S, I believe, has it, as well as some of their tablets. And that's 4K footage inside a sensor that's, you know, one, uh, one, yeah, you know, (laughs) one quarter, one eighth, you know, it's very small sensor. Basically, it has the maximum number of pixels needed for 4K and that's it. It's about eight megapixels sensor on the camera. And people are filming with it and cropping in on it. And honestly, it doesn't look that bad. And they're able to do that with uh, devices and ICs that are in the 30 to $50 price range. These ARM processors and a lens and a little uh, CCD or uh, CMOS sensor on there, you could put all that into a small package like the GoPro. And the GoPro is a great example. They're, they're right at $400, $500 for 4K footage right out of the, the gate. Right. And GoPro, you know, as much as I love them and I own a bunch of their products, they're not quite original in that whole design. There's a company that manufactures their sensor and their chip technology, and you can actually find out what's going to be in the next GoPro by checking out the sensor company's website and reading through the specs on their latest generation chips. Because as <laughs> soon as they release the chip, GoPro puts it right into their camera, and GoPro basically designs the lens format and the interface and a few of those things, but the chip the recording mechanism and everything else behind the scenes is all done by this one sensor company. And with that sort of technology available, 
it's only a matter of time before maybe our cell phone is going to be the proper tool for the proper job. I've already seen camera phones that have complete lenses on them or adapter kits. Sony's done some really wacky stuff with those wireless lenses where the sensor and everything is in there. What do you think about that sort of thing? Are we moving to a a generation where we don't even have to buy a camera? We just have a smartphone? Well, that's one of the big dilemmas. And and actually over on Planet 5D, we just had a post about that. Uh, Because I, I really have felt for several years that once we started fooling with the iPhone, for example, and having the ability to have apps in the iPhone app store, that you could download that would do different features uh, than the out-of-the-box camera on the phone. That, you know, I, I even asked Chuck Westfall, who is the main techie guru guy at Canon, I think it was two years ago at NAB, when Canon was going to go in that direction. And he, of course, said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever go there. Because they've got such an investment in their firmware and... Well, and their manufacturing kind of, process and their hardware yeah, and everything. Yeah. I mean, it takes a long time for them to manufacture a camera. Uh, and it generally takes about three years, which is why things are on such a slow cycle. And it's it's hard for them. It's like moving an oil tanker in the ocean. You know, it's full of a whole bunch of stuff. Whereas the smartphone guys are a lot smaller and more nimble. Like the GoPro guys, good golly, those guys are so nimble they can switch switch tracks on a dime. Uh, but I, I firmly believe that the the way to go in the future, and and even Canon cameras with Magic Lantern, you know, the add on software that people can use. Tons of people are using Magic Lantern behind the scenes because Canon's firmware doesn't provide the, all of the functionality that we'd really like it to have. So long term, I I would love to see software available on a DSLR. Now I don't particularly, and I'm going a little long. I tend to ramble. Sorry. Ah, no problem. Uh, but I I I love my DSLR. I don't like mirrorless cameras because they're too small. I like I have big hands. I like a big DSLR. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, I I like the body. There's something that uh, feels good about holding a full frame camera Absolutely. in your hand, and yeah. even. You know, the smaller 60 I shoot on that, that's at the minimum amount of substantial camera equipment in my hand that I feel comfortable holding when I'm out shooting stills and things like that. On the flip side, though, there's the penalty for weight that you get with full-frame cameras. I've been using the GH4 a lot more than I was expecting I would simply because I can toss three or four primes and a couple of zooms in my bag and it weighs less than a single full-frame camera and the 51 too. And right. because of that, if I have to go film something you know, out in the forest, or in this case, I was in the backcountry in California for the last five months, carrying my gear into a fish hatchery out in the middle of nowhere or up to the top of a dam or something like that, it was way nicer to only have to carry four or five pounds as opposed to carrying yeah, 10 that. to 15 pounds. So even though I prefer the shooting style and the comfort of a full-frame camera, if I have to travel light, I still reach for the less comfortable GH4 simply because of its compact size. Sure, absolutely. And that'll happen too with smartphones and and as things get smaller. uh, I certainly reach for my iPhone when I'm out with the family and stuff 
a lot more often than I carry my DSLR. I used to carry my DSLR absolutely everywhere. Uh, but now that I can shoot 1080 with my iPhone 6, and and like you said, I've got an extra lens kit. I think it's called the iPro something or other that... that One of those adapter can, case type units right, that goes on right. the back? Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, I, I haven't checked in the last couple of weeks, but they didn't have an iPhone 6 case out yet. So I haven't used that. But I think, again, the interchangeable lenses for people like you and me will be absolutely necessary, sure. whereas the general public doesn't care. They don't need to switch lenses. They can zoom in a little bit with their fingers and do a pinch and zoom, and oh. they're happy. So anyway. Yeah, one of, uh, one of the things about that is that the camera you have, I believe, is the old saying, is the camera yep. you use. And everybody has a smartphone, so that is where many of the pictures are going. Uh, moving on from there to compact stuff, The Verge reports that Panasonic is introducing a pair of palm-sized 4K camcorders. The WX970 and WX870 both shoot ultra-high definition 4K footage. They feature a half-inch black or backlit sensor. That's a new technology where they flip the printing of the sensor pixels around so that uh, it gets more light. And this also has a 20x zoom with an, a constant f1.8 Leica lens. Now, these are going to be about $1,000 to $900. The only difference between the higher model and the lower model is that one has a rear-facing camera in what Panasonic is calling twin camera mode. Apparently, this is in case you want to have a selfie while you're filming someone else do something. I'm not really sure if that's a, a thing or not. Maybe it is. But uh, what do you think about moving to a camcorder? Panasonic's already offering up a ton of point-and-shoot cameras that have 4K internally. Uh, the 100 series comes to mind. Why would we need a camcorder now? Uh, it's a damn good question. Um, there are, however, a lot of people that probably still like to have a camcorder body. I I will note one thing, though. The, the extra twin camera feature in reading the details on the Verge website. Yeah. Sometimes my tongue just flops around in my mouth. Oh, I apologize for that. Um, you can it's it's on the flip out display, which means that if you rotate the flip out display in the other direction, then you could actually film forwards. You couldn't see what you're filming, but you could film forwards. It's not just necessarily a selfie plus shooting forward. So that's that makes it a little more interesting. That I wonder if this said, would be an, an interview camera, maybe for like YouTube or something of that nature, if you're able to show the interviewer in a small corner at the bottom of the screen while interviewing the person in front of the camera, that might be a yeah. compelling reason to go with this. That could be. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, I, I can't imagine that Panasonic doesn't have some research that says there's a market for this. They don't just throw things out there just to see if they're going to stick, I don't think. Uh, but then again, maybe, <laughs> you know, CES and other kinds of shows, they tend to, to announce some things before they're really ready for production. Maybe if they get a yawn, they'll go, well, maybe you just won't ever release that. I don't know. But I'm with you. I don't I haven't picked up a camcorder. I have two of them actually laying on my desk because I'm trying to uh, convert the old DV tapes. Oh man! <laughs> merge them onto my computer, so they're sitting on my desk. But that's the only reason they're out of a box is is they haven't been out of a box in five years. Yeah, I still have some HV20s laying around somewhere from a feature length I shot years and years ago. 
But uh, I do use one of Canon's camcorders. I believe it was last year's model with the uh, one half inch sensor. It's pretty good in low light and I can hand it off to people when I'm filming. It's the behind the scenes camera. Ah, and they sell good. on eBay. You can buy those old older camcorders from last year and the year before for maybe 200 or $300. They're 1080p. They have good quality. The footage is easy to edit. And they're really compact. And you can get one of those crazy extended batteries and put them on there. And they'll last all day. And if yeah. you have a friend or someone that's with you that doesn't know how to operate a camera proper, uh, then this camera, you point it at something, hit the record button, and occasionally you rock the zoom back and forth. And that's yeah. about it. And with that said... Maybe you're right, Mitch. Maybe there's a ton of people out there that want something really simple with a record button that has some cool things. This offers up uh, HDR mode, which I'm not 100% sold on, even oh, in yeah. photography, yeah. Uh, and 120 frames per second. So maybe if you want to have slow motion of your kid sliding down the slide or you know running at the park and you don't really have a use for a point-and-shoot camera because you use your phone, Maybe right. this is the video alternative to your cell phone for consumers as opposed to the photography aspect. Yeah, yeah I really like the behind-the-scenes aspect, uh, at least for, for you and me, because you can definitely hand something like that to a noob. Um, <laughs> and is it noob or newbie, by the way? Uh, well, there's two forms of the word noob. Um, <laughs> one is spelled with a W and the other one is two O's. The reason I picked the two O's is because that one's actually the more offensive version. And with two O's, it means that the person who's reading your stuff was basically not inclined to go read the manual themselves. So they just ah. asked a bunch of questions. The W version of noob is actually the version where they're brand new to something, but they're trying really hard and asking lots of questions and reading everything. So uh, as far as the internet speak goes, that was the choice. And when I originally started, the reason I started the site was because on film projects, people would ask me, hey, uh, what are you using there? What are you doing with this? And like, how do you have that set up? I'm like, well, you can go read the manual here, but I can explain it to you. And they're like, you should just uh, put up a website where you explain the stuff that you do and, and have all the stuff there so I can just look for it. And like, okay, well, I guess instead of reading the manual, you can come read my site instead. And that works out. So that's where the noob came from. Little well, insight. you've certainly been rocking it for a while. How long has the site been up? Uh, I started maybe a year or two after you did. Um, I picked up a 5D and a 7D, and uh, those were my very first transitions into DSLR video. And before that, I still had a really old uh, D100 from way back in the day, or 100D. Uh, you know, the like the very first digital cameras that Canon was releasing yeah. in the late 1999 to 2001 range. And I, I shot on that for forever. And then when the uh, 5D Mark II came out, that was a little bit out of my price range. But the year after, the, 5, or the 7D came out. So I grabbed a 7D right away, a couple of T2Is, the 5D Mark II, because it had come down in price a little bit. And I just started going from there. And that's the pretty much the whole thing before that i filmed on dv tape and on um sd cards and i filmed a bunch of of horror movies and feature-length films and things like that and cool. it was really nice to switch over because before that 
and you were you're older than I am, so you remember when people hey, were trying hey. to uh, adapt like these lens rigs to their DV cameras. They were mounting their DV cameras upside down and hooking them onto like old Nikon glass. You had to use this vibrator system that was made. I think Jag made a few of them, and uh, they vibrated it so that you couldn't see the imperfections in the lens when you were focusing on the back plane of the lens in order to get your footage. And it was this whole like horrible progression of we were super excited about shooting 1080p in uh, a dv camera and then we were really excited when it wasn't just this kind of widescreen aspect on our 1080p footage and we were able to go full uh, 1920 by 1080 and then all of a sudden dslrs hit the market and now you can put a lens on any camera you would like and you're not spending 20 60 70 thousand dollars on your cameras anymore and it opened the market up completely. The floodgates are open for anybody with, you know, three or four grand to put together a really nice kit and start filming tomorrow. It, it was a big revolution. You know, I found a, a, an old point and shoot. You were talking about the first digital video camera, I think. I, I found a Canon point and shoot in the basement the other day. It has a 16 megabyte compact flash card. Nice. Not gigabytes, megabytes. I cannot even, I can put it in my 5D Mark III, but I can't even take a single raw image with it because those are 23 megabytes when they come off the camera. So <laughs> I can shoot like two or three JPEGs on it, and that's it. I'm like, holy cow, what an old card this is. Yeah, I anyway, had um, that was way off topic. Oh, no, that's fine. You got me reminiscing now, and I'm trying to remember <laughs> the name of it, but I had one of the first $1,000 Sony uh, floppy disk drive cameras and i want to say it had 10 in the title but uh, you basically you shoved a floppy disk in there and your images were maybe 600 by 400 or something like that and everybody was really excited because that was in the late 90s and you could finally take a picture and you didn't have to scan it and you could publish it to the internet and it was on Uh, GeoCities or you know angel fire or something like that and you're really excited wow (laughs) on a floppy yeah on a floppy disk and then after that, um, I I upgraded to a, a Fuji camera, and it used I don't remember what the name of the media was, but it was that really really thin memory card. You remember that for oh, a while? I no, I don't remember that. Uh, there was it was kind of one of those outlier systems, but the memory card was a little bit thicker than about four pieces of paper stacked on top of itself. Wow! And you you got maybe a two meg or three meg and. That was a huge upgrade because now I had this tiny little device that I was taking pictures on as opposed to a floppy disk that, you know, you break and you lose and what have you. So that dates my camera experience yeah. back. Before That's that, it was back there in the Wayback Machine. Yeah. Uh, before that, it was a Pentax K1000, which is still a classic in these days. Before we get too far off topic, let's uh, <laughs> wrangle this back into the news articles here. Uh, Venture okay. Report or Venture Beat reports that uh, Vimeo Pro subscribers will now be able to upload 4K footage to their Vimeo account. Uh, they won't be able to stream 4K, but users will be able to download 4K from any of these Pro user accounts. What do you think about this? Is Vimeo behind the curve in the 4K market? I. <sighs> I'm torn. I'm I'm still not totally convinced that 4K is all that awesome. However, uh, <laughs> I I may be changing hats here very soon because 
just yesterday, uh, I, my hard drive crashed on my iMac, and I'm a Mac guy as opposed to you, a Windows guy. Yeah. And if we, you know, continue working together, we'll have many battles over that, I'm sure. But <laughs> um, my hard drive crashed on Sunday, and I ended. I took it to the uh, Apple Store, and they said they could fix it, but they had to order a hard drive. And long story short, I ended up deciding that I just needed to go ahead and buy the new iMac Retina, which is a 5K display. And I am just, every time I look at this screen, I'm just like smiling and going, God, this is so cool. Uh, and I've been trying to watch a few 4K videos that are over on YouTube. And, you know, it, it sort of goes back to the old debates. And, and we could talk about this for another hour and a half or two, I'm sure. But, you know, part of the thing about cameras like the GH4, although it shoots 4K, it still looks kind of video-esque to me. It, it looks more so realistic that it's it's not film feeling like a cinema look. And when I'm watching a 4K video from YouTube, I'm like very much, you know, a lot of them are nature. They're, they're, everything is in focus. And so it looks really awesome because you're looking at awesome details. Yep. Whether whether that's right for cinema is a whole nother debate. But so recently, <laughs> as of yesterday afternoon, I now have this really awesome display and I'm sitting, you know, 20 and 24 inches from it and it looks incredible. So I, I think in terms of downloading, our Internet speeds are still relatively slow. When I watch a YouTube video I that's a 4K, I tend to just put it on pause and try to let it load, you know? Yeah. Uh, so there's there's still all sorts of issues with internet speed that are going to take that. Uh, well, I think we're be... getting, getting ahead in Kodaks, though. Um, as the internet speed in the United States especially stays the same, right. uh, new Kodaks keep coming out that make it even more efficient to right. send the bits. yeah. And yeah, H two six five. That's a great example. That one is dropping the amount of data it takes to stream four K by a quarter or half, depending on the resolution of the four K image and the amount of compression you want to use. And right. now you're almost getting into the amount of compression needed and the amount of data bandwidth needed for HD at its older version. You know, the amount of data was taken to send an HD clip to your TV. So right. I think even if bandwidth and the uh, capability of the internet, especially in a lot of these rural areas, doesn't keep up. The Kodaks and science will pull ahead and help us out so that we can move on to those higher resolutions. Well, that's that's certainly a very awesome point uh, because I think that's what's actually needed. I mean, there are a lot of people who don't know, for example, uh, that ESPN is still, for the vast majority of people in the United States, sending out a 720 HD signal. They're yeah. not even sending out a 1080 HD signal. And for people, uh, I told that to the guy at the Best Buy store when I was there a couple of days ago, and he's like, "Oh no, that's that that's got to you know," because he's trying to sell 4K TVs, and I'm like, "You're you're not going to be getting anybody sending a whole lot of 4K content down the pipe because we can't even get 1080 yet." Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. Addressing the uh, 4k issue though, you did uh, tell me exactly what I thought was going on in the world with the whole 4k tags on, on videos in general. And this kind of goes back to the whole Vimeo thing. As soon as you have a 4k monitor or panel or computer, what's the first thing you want to go do, right? You want to go Watch find 4K. 4k footage and yeah. watch it. 
So <laughs> as people buy these things and as people upgrade, I just got a new laptop myself with a, a 4K screen on it. It's not 5K like yours, but uh, that's still uh, quite a bit of resolution in your screen. And I did the same yeah. thing. I was like, man, I should watch some 4K videos on this and see how they look. And <laughs> and I did. And then I went and shot some stuff on my GH4 and I threw it up on there. And now to address the sharpness and the the look of the 4K footage, one of the things that is wrong with a lot of the new TVs, and this is even a problem in the 1080p, and I'm kind of right. going off to the side here, but uh, oh. those TVs have these you know, clarity settings and these high frame rate uh, tools yep. inside that are supposed to do these special things. Well, when you turn all that on, that's when you get that really sort of cine- or soap opera looking, yep. nasty, over-realistic look out of these TVs. And I have a very nice Panasonic 60STV, I believe. It was the last uh, um, plasma that they released. It got great reviews, everything. But the thing is, is that TV, when I got it, the image looked awful. And it wasn't because the TV wasn't capable of producing a good image. It was just because all of these color science devices in the background were running and making the footage that was coming into the TV look horrible. And I had to go through and read a few forums in order to figure out what to turn off and how to turn it off and where it was in the menu. Yeah. And so a lot of the feeling that I've I've got from people talking about a higher resolution video kind of stems from that. They've walked through the Best Buy, they've seen the TVs, and they're disgusted by that look. And that's the default look that manufacturers are installing on a lot yeah. of these televisions. Yeah. And it's awful. Uh, with the GH4 as an example, when I shoot 4K... If I'm going to use the 4K image, I generally tend to throw a little bit of softening on it as opposed to sharpening. I I like to make it look a little bit more creamy as opposed to really crisp and high detail. And you have to think about that when you're shooting with the camera because in 4K footage, you're dealing with a 2.3 crop. So now all of your apertures have changed in the depth of field that you're dealing with and more stuff is in focus. And if you don't think about that when you're shooting and you... You're used to shooting at 5.6 and you dial up to 5.6. Well, now your entire scene is going to be in focus. And that does bring you that kind of video look. Uh, right. The whole nice thing about having lenses attached to your camera and being able to film with them is that you can change the uh, amount of aperture. You can widen it up and, and make things disappear in the background. And so you do have to go with stuff like the uh, Voigtlander series 0.95 lenses to really get that sort of uh, bokeh-esque soft background out of focus area when you're filming it's it, it, and it, and we go back to the previous conversation I, there are so many things i want to say oh no problem you're talking i'm like holy cow this is this is awesome conversation um when i went to the best buy and there was i was looking at the tvs and the, there's one tv where they're actually showing how they're changing the color to make them look more vibrant and it was like i got the i pulled the the salesman over and i said do you know filmmakers absolutely hate what this TV is doing? I mean, it's changing the color that the original person who filmed this desired. I mean, they went through a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir, I know. They went through a whole lot of trouble to make this thing look the way they wanted it to. And this TV is manipulating the hell out of it. And he's like, oh, well, you know, that's one of the things that we sell. The people that are buying the TVs really love that. I'm like, oh, gosh, <laughs> this is not good. Uh, but the other problem that we as filmmakers have 
is the fact that there are so many different kinds of devices that our, our films or our commercials or our YouTube videos are appearing on is that you cannot control what that thing is going to look like in the end result. So we spend so many hours pixel peeping over making it look perfect and color cal calibrating our, our cameras and our monitors. And then you got some Yoohoo that's watching on a 12 year old TV that looks like crap. And, you know, you can't control that stuff. And, and I guess you just have to let it go and just pray that it looks the way you want it to look for some people. <laughs> But I, I know people get frustrated with that whole thing. So anyway. Well, and that's the thing with YouTube. A lot of people are watching on their low end to medium end all the way up to high end monitors. And the image quality and the settings that they use on those monitors are all over the place. Yep. I personally calibrate my monitors, but I'm in the minority. And most filmmakers are in the minority as far as caring about what their screens and monitors and so on look like. It's kind of sad, but at the same time, the end user is usually pretty happy with yep. what they're getting. So I suppose maybe it's time for us to spend a little bit less time focusing on how perfect our color and our, our image correction and everything else is and just put our stuff out into the world, especially if it's on a, a lower budget and it's not aimed for any specific you know, market like television or something like that. All right, and next up on the news article list here is the Yangio clone lenses. Have you seen any of these? I have not. I had not seen them until you sent this out. Uh, I think there's a great market, however, because as long as they're high quality, and uh, one of the reviewers that I looked at, uh, I found one over on Petapixel. Uh, they seem to really like it for 40 bucks. Now, they claimed that it wasn't quite as high quality as the Canon 50 millimeter. Uh, I was looking at the Canon 50 millimeter version. Uh, so, but, you know, for most people, it's probably awesome. Well, and for your first 50, now to continue on with this before we get too far in without talking about the lenses themselves, <laughs> uh, Yangio has a 50 millimeter F1.8 Canon clone, and it's also Nikon compatible. They also have in the works, this is supposed to be released in the Q1 of 2015, a 35 millimeter f2 the 50 millimeter is priced at between 40 and 80 dollars depending on where you go uh right. there's a link on dslrfilmnoob.com right now for the 40 dollar version you can find that kind of buried away in amazon and uh the 35 millimeter when it comes out they're expecting the price range to be in the 100 to 150 dollar range now as you said mitch a lot of people are reporting that these look pretty decent and if it's your first 50, $40, that's pretty compelling. Even if it's not the best lens out there, I'm sure this newer technology lens, this 50 millimeter as an example, at least stands up to some of the old uh, manual focus lenses that people are buying for 30 and 40 bucks on eBay right now. So at least with this, you have autofocus if you want to do some photography with it in the future. Yeah. I think I think there's a a great market, especially if you're starting out, like you said, and you want to have a wide variety of lenses as opposed to maybe just buying a zoom, which is, of course, awesome a valid option. option. You know, it just depends. A lot of people really love primes and some people just really love zooms. It all depends upon your needs. But obviously, 
and I think you even mentioned this on on an earlier podcast that that some people have shot entire movies with a single lens. Um, you know, filmmakers tend to have better luck if they have a wide variety of lenses, especially when you start and get out there and start shooting as opposed to sitting around pixel peeping all the time. <laughs> and if you, if you practice enough with different lenses, you get to know what their flavor is because every lens has a flavor, right? Yeah. You know, even some of the brands, when I talked to Shane Hurlbut, uh, who did, you know, major Hollywood movies, he talks about Zeiss has a certain color and Leica lenses have a slightly bluer color. So he knows intimate details about all of the lenses that he uses because he wants a particular look for a particular scene. And the more you get out and use different lenses, and if and if they're much lower priced like this and you can now afford to buy multiple lenses, that's just going to make you a better filmmaker. Well, and a $150 35mm, that's a pretty sweet spot for oh, crop yeah. sensor users. Uh, that's getting you pretty close to a 50 equivalent. Uh, I believe that works out to about 56 millimeters on a 1.6 crop. So right. that's a really good starter walk-around lens. And the 51.8 on a crop, that's about an 85 millimeter equivalent. So that's a also a pretty decent one to have around. And these prices make it really good for beginners. We're going back to that whole thing we started out with where it's so affordable now to grab something like an old T2i and a few of these really affordable lenses and go out and make your first film or short or what have you and just start filming. So absolutely true. And um, Now, one I've... other thing I wanted to point out on these uh, uh, Yangyo devices, they are notoriously known for basically reverse engineering Canon and Nikon gear. Uh, one of their first releases, as far as equipment goes, is actually their series of of flashes for both Nikon and Canon cameras. And they're one of the first flash companies that are not Canon to get up to that one eight thousandths flash range for Canon DSLRs. They're Ooh. also able to compatibly work with the old 560s. And now the, is it the 650 or 680 for the new flashes? I believe it's 680. The, e yeah. the EX1s the uh, and the EX2s. So the IR system as well as their wireless system and their ETTL system all works with those units and their flash heads are in the 160 to $200 range as compared to 400 wow. and above for the Canon units. There has been some issues about strength of flash and the control in some of the earlier models, but I personally own three or four of, of Yongyo's higher-end flashes and really? I mix them in intermittently with my uh, 580s. And my 580X2, I haven't had enough of an issue to really have a problem with it. So they're wow. definitely something to check out if you're trying to move into the flash portion of photography. Also, these lenses, it's really awesome to see another manufacturer making yeah. really affordable lenses. Even if they're not pro-ready, they're still very affordable. And it's another option that people have when yep. they're starting out. You know, I'm I am incredibly impressed with your knowledge base. Good golly, I I could probably throw out uh, a brand, and you probably have used it. Um, I'm sitting in a <laughs> studio right now, uh, full of kit. I have uh, ceiling to floor shelves with everything you can think of. This is a honey trove place, and I I test so much stuff and mess around with so much stuff. It just 
it gathers up and I kind of find the things I like and remember the things I don't like. So, so that some of that stuff in the background in, in your videos is not just junk. No, no, that's, <laughs> that gets taken off the shelf almost immediately and used for other things. So uh, sorry about that. Oh, no problem. The, the thing is I've worked on so many feature length films. A lot of times, um, especially if I'm doing horror films, I will collect a lot of the prosthetics and the, uh, dummy masks and yeah. the squib portions, you know, the, the guts and stuff like that right. and save them as just stuff to hang around the house. And so I have a ton of, of first run movie posters and DVDs and these props from all of our films just laying around. And I was the only one that, that wanted to take them. Otherwise they'd have just been in the trash can. So oh. that's also some of the junk behind me in some oh, of my videos. Saying- you're saying you're a hoarder. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, you know, I might be. <laughs> I'm right on the edge. I can still walk through my living space, so I haven't well, got to the epic level yet. What was that, what was that show? I forgot what channel it was on where they were selling uh, cinema uh, memorabilia. I, well, I watched it for, I don't know, six I don't months. know. Um, one thing I'm that? completely not in touch with, and this is kind of funny as a filmmaker... I don't have cable. I don't really watch very much TV. <gasps> Shocking. I, I go to the theater on a regular basis, but that's about it. I do not ingest much television at all, if if any. I maybe do a half an hour to an hour in a three or four day span. And that's because I'm so busy filming and doing other things related to filming that I don't have time to go sit down and watch a bunch of, I don't know, Big Bang Theory or aliens in the pyramids and and things like that so i, I am I'm missing well, out on a lot of culture you are not a typical american who spends five hours in front of a tv every day gosh well and i get that a lot from people they're like uh you make films yeah and you don't <laughs> you don't know what the show is it's about filmmakers i'm like uh um no <laughs> sorry just don't have time to watch it well, maybe you should look this guy up he's out in california that did the it was a reality tv kind of show but he sells film memorabilia. So you may be sitting on something that's worth tons and tons of money. I don't you think so. You're a rich man. <laughs> I, I know the value of most of my props. They're from a very low-budget horror movies. So yeah. they're cool props. Don't get me wrong. But these these films, most of them were straight to VHS back in the day and straight to DVD later oh, on. There's some collector out there, DJ, that's just looking for that. Maybe Make I'll save them up as the my wall. retirement plan. <laughs> I don't know. All yep. right. Diving on to the discussion topics here. I've got the Sony press release as well as their uh, CES video of the new lenses that they're finally going to start offering for E-mount. One of the big issues with the A7S is the complete lack of yep. lenses when the system came out. And I, I was actually talking about this on an earlier podcast, but one of my theories is that Sony was not expecting their E-mount series cameras to be as popular as they are. No, they weren't. And so when they originally released them, they just threw a few lenses out there and said, ah, whatever, and they were going to walk away, as they do with many of their products. But when (laughs) traction started picking up for the A7S especially and the A7 series in general, then they had to scramble to start releasing lenses. And I'm looking at stuff like the uh, 16 to 35 F4 and some of these other lenses, and it almost feels like Sony is basically just combing their patent portfolio of Minolta lenses to get stuff out as fast as possible for these E-mount lenses. 
And now it sounds like they're starting to get a little bit more serious about it. We've got a 28mm F2, a 35mm F1.4, a 90mm F2.8, which is a little disappointing, and a 24 to 240, 3.5 to 6.4. Uh, that's $1,000? Really? Yeah. Oh, man, I, these prices are all over the place. What do you think about this new batch of lenses that are supposed to be hitting in the February and March range? I'm going to give you a short answer. I honestly have no clue because I don't know anything about Sony glass. I've I've never shot anything with Sony glass. So I'm sorry I don't have an opinion. Oh, that's okay. Uh, one <laughs> of the things that I'm going to start testing here in the next week or two is actually some of the old Minolta lenses. Now, yeah. you probably know Minolta was uh, kind of a pioneer in the autofocus system. They had yep. autofocus lenses as far back as 86 and 87. And we're still making good autofocus systems all the way up into the early 2000s when they were bought by Sony. So when Sony bought them, the A mount is identical to Minolta's original mount. And all of those autofocus lenses work one for one with cameras like the A99. Well, Sony sells an adapter that's an E mount to A mount. And it's the EVA4 model, I believe. That particular model has the focus driving system that you need to use Minolta lenses as well as any of Sony's A-mount lenses. And they have a far wider category of A-mount lenses than they do of E-mount lenses right now. That adapter is about 399 to 400 I should have a post up on that in the next uh, couple of days. But if you get that, Minolta lenses... There's a bunch of 24 to 70 f or 28, excuse me, to 70 f 2.8, as well as 51 fours and 35 one fours and things like that on eBay, and they're priced in the 400 to 500 dollar range, which is pretty decent for those focal lengths and that type of class. And they're well built lenses because Minolta didn't put the driving motor inside the lens themselves. They were able to make these lenses a little bit more solid. There, There's metal bits to them. They're very tough. All it has in it is the reporting information for the driver itself, and the focus motor is in that adapter, the A-mount to oh. E-mount adapter. So if you are an A7S owner and you're looking to kind of move into some native lenses without having to spend the money, you might want to look at some older Minolta glass. I tested a few of them out while I was in California at a pawn shop, a couple of pawn shops actually, because it seemed as though Minolta glass littered the fields of pawn shops all over the place. And I was able to get pretty much native lens focus speeds out of these on the A7S, which is very surprising and good. I was actually impressed with the focus speed once I was using a native lens. And I've even been looking at uh, the 55mm f1.8. Normally, I cringe at 1.8, but it Why? does look like, well, mostly because if I'm spending $700 or $800 on a lens, give me f1.4, give yeah. me f1.2. You know, I feel like the dollar amount dictates a, a wider aperture. And, you know, that's only a personal opinion. That's not necessarily <laughs> a fact, but right. it's the same with their uh, 16 to 35 millimeter f, uh, f4. That's a 13 to $1,700 lens. And it's an F4? Really? You know, I, if I'm spending that much money, I kind of want to have F2.8. Even if I don't right. need it, I want to have it because right. I'm spending a lot of money. And maybe that's just a mental block for me or a weird reasoning. You're defective, DJ. Yes. You're defective. I'm definitely defective. <laughs> but Hey, I win. I, I got the right, right name. I don't know. It's 
It's just frustrating a little bit. I'm excited to see some of these new lenses coming out, and some of the price ranges aren't too bad. The 28 millimeter f2 is $499, and the 35 millimeter is is a 1.4, and it's priced pretty competitively with Canon's glass at $1399. So, from your notes, those say euros on the end. So, oh shoot, those Those might be higher. Those are actually higher than that. Uh oh, I think I copied these from somewhere that was a European site. Four ninety nine euro. That's probably like six hundred bucks then. Yeah. Ooh. Okay, that makes these less attractive to me. <laughs> All right, Minolta, it is. Congratulations. All right, moving on down the discussion topic here. I don't know. Do you edit on SSD, Mitch? I do not. Well, let me rephrase that. With the new iMac that I have, has the Apple quote unquote Fusion Drive in it. Oh, an SSD piggybacked with a spinning drive. Correct, and I. I found out that it's a 128 gigabyte SSD. And the way they have this software set up, supposedly, is that they're putting the operating system and all of the applications on that SSD. Now, what what I'm actually planning to do is to put very little stuff on the SS on the internal drive because I've got a Thunderbolt external that's four terabytes yeah. and. You know, I've got extra places to put backup stuff. So all the stuff that I really am going to do critically, and I'm and I'm going to be doing some stuff coming up that I really want to edit quickly. Uh, so I'm going to use that internal, keep it as small as possible, so that I'm really trying to use the SSD portion of that for the most of it. And and I should be cool. I didn't want to spend the extra money putting an SSD in there that was bigger than 128 gigs. Well, that's the thing. Uh, Apple's a little bit well, yeah. proprietary, proprietary yeah. about their their upgrades. You kind of have to yeah. spend a lot of money on the SSDs. Yeah. For PC owners, the Mushkin, I believe is how you pronounce it, one terabyte drive. And I'm looking at the information right here and checking the pricing on Newegg. But it looks to be the really sweet spot of $0.36 cents a gig. So you can buy a one terabyte SSD for three fifty nine, brand new with a three year warranty. Now, one of the things to note about this is this is last year's uh, memory controller. This is a Silicon Motion uh, controller, so it's a little bit slower on reads and writes. But when I say a little bit slower, we're talking read speeds of five hundred and sixty megs a second and write speeds of four hundred and sixty megs a second. That's only trailing by the latest generation of SSD controllers by about forty megs on the right side. And it's not trailing at all on the read side. So wow. this isn't really going to hurt you at all. And it's extremely affordable priced. And SSDs, once you start editing on them, they'll change your whole outlook on a, a computer. Especially for PC users. If you have an old editing laptop, something like that, you throw one of these in there. And it's like you gave that computer a brand new uh, organ transplant or something like that. Uh-huh. It's just yeah. It goes from slow and, and chugging along to just speedy and fast. And one of the links I have in here, because there was at the early days a concern about the longevity of these hard drives, these SSDs, is the Tech Reports uh, hard drive challenge. They have written a ton of data to a bunch of last year and the year before's uh, popular SSD brands. And right now, the article I linked to in the show notes is actually at the four or 500 terabyte mark. Now, I was talking about this uh, earlier this week, but uh, 
the amount of hard drive uh, writing that I've done to my SSD, and I'm kind of a power user in the last seven or eight months, has been two terabytes. What? And it took me seven months to write two terabytes of data to my drive uh, over that course, you know, moving uh, footage in and oh. out and all that stuff. And that's pretty heavy use. I mean, I'm talking, you know, five and 600 gig projects back and forth yeah, onto I, the drive. I would have thought it would have been higher. Yeah, I, I know. And the the nice thing about the E840 Evos that I use is they actually do write tracking on there. So my numbers, I was surprised too. I was expecting it to be a lot higher, but that's what's going on in the background. So if you start thinking about that in terms of 500 terabytes worth of data being written to that drive, imagine how long it would take you to get to 500 terabytes. Yeah. And they had zero failures at 500 terabytes and they took these all the way up to the uh, petabyte range and still had drives that were working. So I guess where I'm wow. going with this is that most of these uh, SSDs have three- to five-year warranties. You're going to write less data than they've written in this uh, tech report article to those drives in a three- to five-year lifespan. And by that time, the drives will be even cheaper, and you'll just go buy another one. Right? Do you expect your spinning drive to last three to five years? No. Exactly. <laughs> no. So. When there's concerns about the longevity of SSDs, that's something to keep in mind is that they're just as good now, if not better, than the technology that's available in SS or in regular spinning hard drives for longevity. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, 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 I was looking at something the other day that's an external mount, like um, a dock, sort of like a docking station, which I... I use for bare hard drives. Okay. Uh, and there's a new one now that has a Thunderbolt 2. No, it was a Thunderbolt external dock that also mounts SSDs. So maybe I'll look into putting one or two of those in an external dock. I'm telling and, you, Mitch, I used to work off of a RAID 0 array at yeah. my desk. And... One SSD replaces three or four hard drives in RAID 0 format. So that's the difference in, in potential that you're getting out of this. And I've gone all the way back to the old days when I used to work off of SCSI drives. This is, this is amazing, <laughs> the speeds that we're getting. Oh, yeah. And in, yeah. at a lot of times, your project isn't limited by your CPU's ability to handle the footage. It's actually limited by how fast the data storage can throw the information right. at your CPU or your GPU in some right. cases to work on it. So these SSDs, it's like having a huge RAID set up in a, a tiny little 2.5 millimeter form factor. They are really sexy. All right, on the list here, actually, this is one of your news articles. Um, what? Yes, yes. I scour the web from everywhere. Uh, the small HD buyout, it looks like they're being acquired. <laughs> Can you tell me more about this, Mitch? I I don't know that much about uh, the acquisition. A small HD has been a, a very. Um, I'm stumbling over my words for some reason. A, a popular, very innovative company. They, They've they, kind of yeah, come from behind. I followed them for a while because I met them when they very first did their very first um, Doritos commercial. No, the Doritos commercial. Oh, okay. Do you know that story? Uh, no, I don't. Do tell. Doritos runs a Super Bowl contest every year recently. I think they're on their fourth or fifth year where filmmakers can send in a 
30 second Doritos commercial and win the winner will get a million dollars in cash. And the small HD guys filmed their, they actually did two of them, uh, submitted them to the Doritos, and they were finalists in the very first Doritos giveaway, and they won the million bucks, which funded the creation of several of the other monitors. At the time, they were just a brand new startup. And so they used that Doritos funding to expand. And so now here they are being bought out. And I don't know anything about the financials, whether they made a fortune or not. Uh, Vitek, I don't think, tends to be like Google, where they just throw a billion dollars or something at you. But I know the guys at at, at, uh, Small HD thought long and hard about that decision, because now they're working for somebody else as opposed to working for themselves. But... Uh, well, there's probably some benefits too in the amount of buying power. Uh, some of these larger conglomeration groups have the ability to go to people right. that make screens and things like that and say, Hey, give me this at this price. And I want to lock it in for this long. One of the discussions I had with the small HD guys a couple of years ago at NAB was actually about being able to procure enough of a particular type of screen to release a product. Right. Because the cycles for uh, screen technology are so fast, every new cell phone has a new screen. And a lot of these manufacturers are focusing on those types of screens as they move forward. Well, what ends up happening is as soon as they finish creating the maximum number of, say, the uh, Nexus 7, or for example, or whatever, they stop making that type of screen and move on to a new type of screen. Well, the small HD guys, their biggest issue was actually being able to secure a large enough quantity oh of monitors, of screen material themselves for their monitors to issue a product for a reasonable amount of time. And because monitor sales aren't a huge market, they couldn't really go to the manufacturers and say, hey, I need a million of these. They're looking to lock in a delivery of maybe 200,000 or 100,000 of a particular type of screen or monitor in order to do a line of the DP6. And actually, that is part of the reason the DP6 ended up being retired and they moved on is because they ran out of screens to create new DP6s. The DP6 had no problem, and the DP7, it's a good monitor as well, but they had to move to the next technology. And even the DP4, uh, I asked him, I'm like, why didn't you just use the screen from one of these, you know, Android tablets? They're beautiful screens, they're IPS, they're 6-inch or 7-inch in nature, and the resolution is there. They're 1080p screens. And he said, listen, those are all spoken for. Those <laughs> monitors are going to tablet manufacturers, and those guys order a million of them. We can't order a million, and so right. we're limited to what we can order in each of those types of environments that we're working in. And just an interesting side note, because I really wanted to know, I was really frustrated at the beginning when I started working with DSLRs on the selection of monitors versus like cell phones and everything else. That's awesome story. I do know that Vitek uh, tends to have a whole bunch of different companies. I think they're 12 or 13 now, you know, they own light panels and one of the bag companies. And I probably could look up a list, but when you go to NAB, they've got a very central location. And so that'll be a move up for small HD in terms of where they are, in marketing. In the marketing side of it, at least at NAB. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of good aspects for being bought out, uh, but sometimes it doesn't quite work out. But I think Phytech's a great 
organization, uh, Benro. They own Benro and Tenba was the bag company that they own. Okay. Um, which I really like Tenba bags, by the way. I wonder if uh, Vitek has a hand in any uh, screen manufacturing facilities that maybe they could combine some of their manufacturing capacity with small HD in order to kind of meet the needs of their monitors. That would be interesting to look into. I might have to dig deeper into uh, Vitek and find out what exactly they own in their conglomerate of things and see if they do have any uh, screen or monitor manufacturing in their lineup. Why don't you take that on while I go watch some TV? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I've got uh, one last thing, and then we'll close this up for the day. Um, We're running pretty long on this, about an hour 10. Uh, Monoprice has an $84 2.4 gigahertz wireless screen or wireless transmitter. What do you think about an $84 wireless transmitter? I'm I'm fascinated by this, and I'm actually tempted to go buy one and, and try it out. The video that you sent me was a very interesting i saw you did a, did a blog post on this um some of the stuff that i'm doing is talking head stuff in front of a camera in front of a, a tv monitor for training that i'm starting to create yeah and i don't like being tethered right now i'm using the rode smart lav to an iphone but it would be really awesome to be able to send the audio straight into the camera and not have to do that post sync well you interestingly mentioned the uh, rode smart lav which is a cell phone compatible device this works with trrs which is the four pole uh, type of 3.5 millimeter plug and it uses wi-fi technology now there's a plus and a minus to that if you live in an area where there's not a ton of of wi-fi routers around you uh, 2.4 gigahertz is is great it works just fine it's good to 100 feet or so. I know they claim 150 feet. That's unrealistic, guys. Get that out of your head right now. It's, it's You're looking at more like 70 or 80 feet on the high end, especially if there's a wall or something like that. You're just not going to get the distance that any of these wireless companies tell you. If they give you a number, just cut it in half, and that's probably what you're going to get. But the thing is, is this is $84. You buy a new mic for it. Now you have maybe a $140 investment because it – Listening to the audio from that video, it seemed to me that it wasn't an issue with the wireless transmitter. It was just an issue with having a crappy mic. mic. Yeah. And so on an $84 device, you don't really expect them to provide you with an amazing microphone. Well, this, if you, as long as you're not going to a convention or in an area with a really dense, uh, 4G or 3G coverage or something like that, or a lot of Wi-Fi going on, this will probably work just fine. It, it looks like it works just fine. I'm going to get my hands on one of these and test them. I have used uh, 2.4 gigahertz transmitters in the past. The other cool thing about this, and I've worked with actors and actresses who do this, is this unit has the ability to transmit a talkback channel. So you can actually put a head headpiece in your ear and listen to someone on the wow. camera end to see what's going on. Because the technology they're using in these 2.4 gigahertz systems is actually a stereo transmitter. Because I have a couple huh. of stereo transmitters myself that are made by uh, uh, Wii Audio. Uh, Wii Audio makes one that's just one way, but it uses both channels. And the one-way system allows you to send um, stereo back to any recording device. So if you have a, a boom mic operator, you can just plug one of these into his soundboard and send camera audio back to the camera without having to have him tethered. That's really awesome because then you don't necessarily have to go collect his audio. As long as your signal was good the whole time... 
nine times out of 10, you can just use the audio that's recorded straight to the camera and you don't even have to worry about gathering memory cards from other people. So that's a really awesome feature. But getting back to this, because you can do that, a lot of actors I've worked with use a playback system. They'll read their lines, especially if they're doing a tutorial style uh, talking head type of thing or if they're doing some kind of informational bit. A lot of the actors don't know a bunch about that particular device, but they can read out loud. So they will read their lines out loud onto a recorder and then have that in their pocket and play it back to them. Now imagine if you could have that recorder playing your lines back to you at the camera and you have a little single earpiece that reads your lines and allows you to say them as you go along. That could be really good for instructional purposes, you know, people doing just uh, informational videos and things like that, where maybe they're not very good at memorizing their lines, but if they read their line and pause and then read their line and pause and do that into the recording, they can listen to their line, deliver their line, listen to their line, deliver their line, and go on like that, and you're good to go. And a lot of those informational videos... You do that crazy like cut thing where you have one angle and then you have another angle and then you have another right. angle and then you have the close up. So really, they just need the line to be read to them. They say the line and they continue on. And you can pause, start, stop as you need to. So that feature is also really cool. And as a news perspective, imagine if you have somebody who's like reading up stuff on what you're talking about before you get to talk about it. And they're saying, oh, hey, make sure you mention this thing or hey, make right. sure you talk about this thing. Don't forget this. Those little cues are great if you're trying to do a discussion like this, where right now I'm lucky enough to have a screen in front of me and I can look at my (laughs) notes. But if I didn't have my notes, it would be free range and I'd have to try and stay on topic without having any other form of information to come to me. Yeah, that's amazing. It looks like an amazing little product. You and I may be testing them out at the same time. Yeah, I, I... Pulled the trigger on this on Friday <laughs> when I saw it. And so I'm going to be getting well, one of these in along with a couple of lofts to test. Uh, Rode also does sell an adapter that is a TRRS four pole to a three pole. And right. that one is specifically wired to go with the Rode video mic series. Uh, keep in mind, guys, if you have a Rode video mic, Rode does some wacky do wiring with their output for their stereo plug on their Rode video mics and the VideoMic Pros. They basically don't conform to a normal standard of output on the ground and the tip ring sleeve. So if you don't use one of their adapters, you need to make sure that you know how that's wired and you wire your own up, that it's wired correctly to work with that. Otherwise, it's going to short out the audio coming from the Rode mic and you won't get anything. And people run into this all the time when they're trying to use an XLR to Rode VideoMic adapter for you know makeshift boom poles and stuff like that. Right. So... Make sure you look at that and understand what's going on. And if you don't, it's expensive, but Rode sells the the plug adapter for 18 bucks. So 18 bucks is worth more than two days worth of beating your head against the ground trying to figure out why your thing isn't working. You know some stuff, DJ. I'm really impressed. Oh, well, thank you, Mitch. <laughs> I I scour the internet all the time, and I do so much weird projects that I just have to know a lot of random crap. Well, I've been, you know, learning more about audio recently, and I just found out about this TRRS versus TRS three-pole versus four-pole, so it's brand new to me. So I'm amazed that you know so much stuff. Uh, it's a it, pretty standard technology for cell phones. Uh, one thing to note, right? Mitch, if um, if you've used one of those Apple headsets, uh, something like that, uh, right. The plugs on those, one of them is for transmitting the audio from the microphone, and the other two are for stereo audio back to your headphones. 
So that's what's going on with like a lot of these gaming headphones and, th- and things like that. So when you get one of these, sometimes they'll even sell you an adapter with your gaming headset. And that's another thing, guys. If you have a gaming headset, go check your box because your box might have that adapter you need already in there. And you can just go <laughs> grab that and you don't have to spend 18 bucks. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go, what were you going to say? I, I was simply going to say uh, Rode has invited me to their annual conference, which is happening in two weeks oh, out okay. in California. So I'll be going out there, and I think they're going to have some new stuff to announce or something. So I'm pretty excited about that. They are a sponsor as a disclaimer, so <laughs> I do tend to mention Rode a lot. But they do make some great products, and they, they happen to have the mics that everybody is using for DSLRs these days. So. Now, one of the other things, um, and I'm not sponsored by Rode, so this is completely my opinion. Rode sells some pretty interesting kit for podcasters, and we are doing a podcast right now, so that's kind of prevalent. Uh, the Procaster series, I have been looking at those. I actually, unfortunately, I ordered one. It got here, that. and the microphone is missing, so that's a bit that's... frustrating. And unfortunately, because I ordered it through Amazon instead of B&H, uh, Amazon's a big conglomerate. You're able to text with them and you know, send emails back and forth. But what ends up happening is you just send it all the way back and you have to wait for a new one to be shipped to you as opposed to just getting the microphone in. But the Procaster series, um, it competes very well with the Electrovoice microphones as well as the Healy PR40 microphone, which is used to be a pretty decent standard for this type of production. And the Rode Procaster microphone is really good about isolating everything but the audio within maybe a foot or so of the front of the diaphragm. And the reason that's great is because if you listen to a lot of podcasts, many of the people (laughs) are really bad about isolating their audio. Their rooms are really echoey. There's, you know, heaters turning on and off, noise all over the place. Having a microphone like that really allows you to separate out the voice from everything else, even if you don't have a proper studio environment. So if you're starting a podcast, definitely take a look at the Rode Procaster. Now, Rode, you can give me some money for doing that. There you go. If you want me to connect you with them, I'll be glad to do that. Um, The the microphone that I'm using right now is the Podcaster from Rode. Oh, their USB version? Yes, the USB version. Um, And I think that's pretty good. I have not compared it to the Procaster, but have you heard noise recently from me? No, your audio has sounded pretty pristine. Well, good, because my, my wife and, and daughter just got back from the grocery store, and there is no door on my office yet. And so I was wondering if you heard the noise that was going out there. But So that's pretty good. It's, it's doing a good job of isolating. Yeah, the only thing I will say about uh, USB microphones is that if you're trying to do a podcast or voiceover work or any of those things, uh, uh, Mitch and I have run into a couple of times during this podcast where we've had to reset a few things. Uh, USB devices... They work like anything else. Uh, sometimes they stop working or sometimes they don't work the way you think they're going to work. Uh, with a microphone that has an XLR output, you can plug that directly into your recorder and you have complete control over the entire audio path before it goes into the computer. And I'm actually using an external recorder for that reason uh, for this particular podcast because I want to be able to set up uh, levels, limiters, and all that on my audio as well as your audio on the fly. And that's a very good reason for not using software stuff because I tend to be a software kind of podcaster and I've got some great stuff set up. It's been a pain to set up and I've been looking more recently at buying some external mixers and stuff because everybody tells me it's just so much easier. 
I am using I get the applause. <laughs> 100% hardware-based stuff. So, all right, last thing on the list here is the pick of the week. I'm going to go ahead and skip the Asus 4K monitor for now. That one is a whole rat hole within a rat hole. Yeah, uh, we already talked about that because I have an iMac 5K, and it's got to be better than that. Ah, <laughs> uh, hey now, hey now. All right, so what is your pick of the week? Something that's made your life easier, something that you're using right now? Um, I have to say the iMac right now. It's 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 just been so so exciting to me to have this 5K monitor sitting in front of my face. Uh, I, I probably could come up with half a dozen other things that make my life easier, but this is the one that's floating my boat right now. It is $2,500, so it's not cheap, uh, but well, I'm, I'm really excited to have it. An editing computer is always handy to have. Uh, my pick yeah. this, this round is actually the thing we're recording this podcast on. It's the Tascam DR60D. And while it has been superseded by the DR70D, which is a cute, really small form factor version of the 60D, the DR60D is now down to the $140 to $160 price range on is Amazon. Really? And wow. that is a steal for this unit. Keep in mind, this is not a USB audio interface, so you will still need some way to plug this into your computer. But it is a four-track field recorder that is easy to carry around, can be mounted on your gear because it has a quarter-20 thumbscrew, and it has no problem accessing large-capacity uh, SDXC cards. So you can just plug those in and start recording. It makes something like this extremely handy and it's got built-in limiters. Uh, it's got built-in compression and a low cut filter. So a lot of the things that you would get in more expensive mics, you can do digitally with the T uh, Tascam DR60D and it makes it really nice if you're trying to capture audio. Cool. I, I like the one I have. I use it a lot. All right. On that note, Thanks for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Uh, next week, we will be heading into more Panasonic lenses. Mitch, where can people find you? I run a website called Planet5D.com. Hopefully you've heard of it. If you haven't, please come over and visit us if you have any particular interest in filmmaking whatsoever. We, we started out as purely DSLR video, but we're covering all the cameras now. And I actually have planetmitch.com. If you want to know more about me personally and some of my other projects, you can find me there. That concludes our broadcast day. Tell me about it, Mitch. Well, part of the, part of the thing about running a blog uh, is there's, there's pluses and minuses and uh, we were just discussing, you know, people that write in and, and say that something that you have done has impacted their lives. And it just blows me away that at least once a week, generally more often than that, I get an email from somebody that'll say that they've taken the time. The, the fact that they've even taken the time to say this blows me away. But they write and they say, Mitch, you know. You've done some amazing things, and, and I've been able to shoot this XYZ film because of all the stuff I've learned from your blog, and you point us to these other blogs, and that's awesome. Last summer, well, two summers ago, uh, our family, we went to California, and we went to uh, several of the national parks out there. We were in Yosemite and, and Sequoia. We were going down the hill in Sequoia to the General Sherman tree, which is like the biggest, most massive tree ever, I yeah. know. And this guy stopped me and he said, hey, aren't you Planet Mitch? And I'm like, 
I'm out in the middle of California in this forest and somebody stops me who knows me. And we didn't talk long because his kids were there and my kids were wanting to get down the hill. But those kind of things just blow me away to be able to realize that I'm impacting, even though I don't necessarily write everything and, and I'm not you know, the creator of every piece of content that comes on Planet 5D because we're showing off things that other people are doing. It's the fact that we're consolidating this information and, and sharing it in one place that makes it valuable. And, and to have people say those kind of things just gives me goosebumps. I'm like, it's just so amazing that, that I've had such an impact from sitting here in my little house in St. Louis. It's really cool when I'm out in the real world. And actually, this happened to me in France. Uh, I was in France earlier this year and Iceland shooting. And in France, I was walking down the street from my motel. You know, I had two days off for the weekend. And uh, this guy runs up to me uh, and he's speaking French at first and I don't understand him. And then he shakes <laughs> his head and he, he starts speaking English and he's like... You, you're a noob. You're a noob. You're a noob. <laughs> and I'm like, um, yes, yes, I'm, uh, I'm DJ from DSLR Film Noob. And he's like, oh, and he's shaking my hand and patting me on the back. And then we ended up talking, and he brought me in. They had a, um, a small film group there uh, of 30, 30 people that gathered on the weekends to you know, talk about filmmaking and stuff. And he's like, hey, can you talk to everybody and like, do, a, you know, do a little presentation and stuff? And it's just bizarre. Like, <laughs> out of the blue, you know, I don't know anybody in France. No I don't pressure. speak French. You know, here you go. And it's, I'm not, none of us on these blogs are really famous, but there's a group, a hardcore group of you know, 10, maybe 15,000 people that really like our stuff and know who we are. And when you run into those, it really makes you feel good that you're helping other people out in the community when they're like, you know, I couldn't have done this without reading this post or this hack you showed me how to do, like, made my production so much better, or now I'm doing professional work because of you. And that's awesome. It is. It is awesome. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I did not start Planet 5D to make money. Uh, it ended up being something that thankfully is feeding my family and I don't have to do a day job anymore. Yeah. But the whole point of doing it at the beginning was to share information because I was out there reading all these forums when the 5D Mark II was first announced and people had wrong information and they couldn't find the cameras. And I was like, I'm I'm actually I'm going to create a wiki. Planet 5D started as a wiki. It didn't start as a blog. Oh, wow. And because, you know, you know, you go out on forums and people ask the same question over and over and they don't go searching for it because the forums you know they feed stuff upon falls themselves off the end. Yeah. yeah and and so i said i'm going to just create a wiki and i want people to know about the 5d mark ii i want to learn about it so i'm just going to store the information that i find in a wiki and i ended up posting regular news updates as i could find places where you could buy it and then i became an amazon affiliate and you know people started buying through my links and i'm like hey this is cool i'm making a little bit of money yeah uh but the original intent was not to make money on the thing it was just to help other people find the information that they needed and that's what i continue to try to do now is to help people find stuff that they may not find on their own and if it helps people then that's great and and that's that's the intent if they happen to write me and say it's great that that makes a little warm and fuzzy for me to go on with the day uh there are very few people that are negative thankfully uh i don't know whether 
you know, there are other people, and I won't name names because I don't necessarily like those people anyway. <laughs> but um, there are other people that complain constantly about people writing in and bashing them. I'm like, well, maybe that's because you're not putting out the right attitude in the first place. Yeah. I rarely have anybody that writes me and tells me to go take a flying leap, which is awesome because it doesn't impact me negatively. I don't get all bent out of shape about stuff very often. Uh, so there are there are billions of really nice people out there, and if I can help them in the slightest way, that's that's what makes my day. It might be the uh, camera community in general because I post a lot of stuff on YouTube, and in other areas of YouTube, the comment section is this <laughs> cesspool of angry young kids yep. like screaming yep. at each other and and calling each other very inappropriate names, but on. My my comment section, I don't run into that. I mean, occasionally there's somebody that's yeah. like, you know, saying something really offensive, but it's so rare that I don't even have to worry about patrolling any of my comment sections anymore because people just don't go out and do that. And I don't know if it's just because people who are interested in cameras are a different different set of people or a group of people or if they're just less about being angry and more about finding results. But it's a very positive community out there. And it's really nice that everybody gets along so well. I have yet to be torn into about anything in particular. So thanks, guys, for you know giving me a break. <laughs> yeah. And I try one of the things I'll note right away is that if I ever make a, a mistake on the cast or say the wrong serial number or part number, I am working off of notes, but my notes aren't entirely accurate. Mench mentioned earlier that I had European numbers for the dollar amounts instead <laughs> yeah, of... that's all right. And so there's little things like that. So if you catch that, let me know. I'll put in a correction. No big deal. And the yeah. same with the site. You see something that's uh, inaccurate or incorrect, I have no qualms with going back and changing something or crossing it out and putting a note next to it that says this has changed. Because I would rather provide the most accurate information as opposed to argue or fight with people about whether or not I'm telling people the right thing. I just want it to be right. So, Sure. And it, everybody has an opinion, and sometimes theirs is different than yours, and they're wrong. But, <laughs> you know, they're entitled to their opinion. Yeah, but... my C100 opinions, <laughs> out of all the things that have gotten me negative comments, the C100 opinions are probably the most prevalent. Uh, there, there no one likes lovers. my opinion of the C100 at all, so... Well, that's okay, DJ. I approve of your opinion. Uh, I don't shoot with the C100, but it's okay. If if you don't like it, it's okay to let people know why. Yeah. If you just bash it for the fact of saying, well, that piece of gear sucks, and, and don't explain what didn't work for you, then they can't learn from that. Exactly. And and you, that's what you shared was why when I heard the podcast, you, you said you didn't like it and this was the reasons and, and your other co-host said, well, you could fix that by doing this. And no, I maybe. said I could, but I didn't. <laughs> I'm done with it now. Yep. Forget it. Yeah, I That's sold mine point. off, but I, I completely agree. And no camera is inferior to any other camera as far as filmmaking goes. I, that's kind of a broad statement, but what I'm saying is uh, the tool you have is the tool you use. So use your camera, enjoy it, make your films. It doesn't matter if it's the lowly EOS M or T2i all the way up to the C100, C500, or any of the other expensive cameras out there. Grab that camera that you have and make a film, and that's the best thing you can do. Well, Zig Ziglar said something, and actually I've heard this attributed to several other people, so I'm not sure if he was actually the first, but 
he said, and I've I've got this on my phone and it pops up every at least once a day as a reminder. You don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Oh, that's and a good it, one. It's 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 very true for me because when I started Planet 5D, I sucked. I didn't know anything about getting in front of a camera. I didn't know anything about shooting video. And the more that I did it, the more I became, and I'm not going to say I'm great, but I have the ability to be in front of a camera, to be confident, to, to do what I'm doing now. And if you go back and look at my first videos, they're like, oh, gosh, <laughs> I could have done this <laughs> and that. Those are so much better. But I was out there doing it. And I did it consistently. And that's the thing. There are so many blogs, and you're awesome at it, even though you were gone for five months. I know that that tends to take a, a difficult hit in terms of how often you can post. Yeah. But, man, you're constantly putting stuff out there, and your traffic is increased because of that. When people started at the beginning of the 5D revolution, there were hundreds of little blogs that started. And the ones that stuck are the guys that post not necessarily every day, but they post regularly. And if yeah. you don't, if you can't keep that up, then you're going to fall apart, and you're not going to you're not going to stick around. People aren't going to keep coming back if you're not consistent. But you got to get started. Well, and I think the secret you... um, the secret number scientists have actually done studies on this for uh, uh, famous musicians and things like that. Ten thousand hours of practice to become an expert is the is supposedly the secret number. And if, you, if you've ever played a musical instrument, you don't start out good. You have to practice and practice and practice, and you have to continue to do it. It's the same thing with your camera gear and filmmaking in general. It doesn't matter if the stuff you create at the beginning of your career isn't very good. You're going to get better as long as you continue to do it. So keep going. Keep chugging along. And you hit that 10,000-hour mark, and, man, you're going to really create some cool stuff. I've, I think I've passed that. <laughs> As many hours as I sit in front of this computer every day, I, I, I hope I've done that. Awesome. Well, it was great talking to you. Uh, Mitch, I hope you have a great afternoon. Enjoy that new MacBook, man. Oh, I, it's, it's an iMac. Oh, iMac. Uh, 5K screen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this for another hour watching 4K video, okay? <laughs> Talk to you later. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.